And for that, you will want to turn to John chapter 12. As we continue through John's Gospel, John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verse 27 to 36. But I'm actually going to back up just a little bit and read verse 23 and 24 to kind of give us the context, kind of center us in the, back in the middle of what has taken place here. John chapter 12, verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 27, Jesus continues, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to Him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for Your sake, not Mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. So the crowd answered Him, We have heard that from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus said these things. He departed and He hid Himself from them. This is God's Word. And Lord, it is to Your Word now we turn. Open our eyes, our ears, our minds. Let us hear with understanding and believe the Gospel that the believers may be strengthened to walk in this dark world by the light, that those without Christ may be brought into that light by believing the truth of the message and looking to Christ by faith alone, in whom we pray. Amen. And so the time of Christ's death is rapidly approaching. That's what He was announcing back in verse 23. Everything up to this point in John's Gospel has really been prologue, preparation for the coming event, the hour, as Jesus puts it. And so that's clearly what is on his mind as he stands there in the midst of this vast crowd at Passover. And then the coming of these Greeks in verse 20 triggers this announcement from the lips of Jesus The hour has come. Because these Greeks have come and representing the whole of the unbelieving world, they've they've come uh, as understanding themselves perhaps as aliens and strangers cut off from God, trapped in sin and the brokenness of this world, hoping that perhaps they may be received into the joy of God's presence. How can this be? They're asking and Jesus points to Himself and says, The hour has come. This seed must die to bear this fruit of salvation. And so it is 
It is that thought in the mind of Jesus concerning His own death that leads Him to say what comes next. And so let's notice, first of all, in this passage, the the agony of Christ as He yields Himself in death for the glory of God. Listen to Him again. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Now these are the... These are the words of a troubled soul. No, 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 they're more than that. They're they're, they're the prayer of a troubled heart. I mean, don't ever imagine that because Jesus is the Son of God, His march to the cross was a cakewalk for Him. It wasn't. It was agony. For just as surely as Jesus is God by nature, He is also man by incarnation. Fully man, completely human, as human as you, flesh and blood just like yours. And isn't that what we celebrate here at Christmas? That for us, God the Son became fully human and dwelt among us. And so now He is standing there among them as a man, and His soul is troubled by what He knows is coming. This word troubled means to be distressed, to be disturbed, upset, agonized. His stomach is turning in knots. His mind recoils against the knowledge of what He will face as He bears our sins. Uh, Not just what He will bear physically, as terrible as that may be, but what He will bear spiritually to become the sin bearer. We tend to think in the Gospel story that it's only in the Garden of Gethsemane that that Jesus wrestles with the agony of His coming death. But, But Gethsemane is still days away at this point and John reminds us that Jesus wrestled with this for some time. Weeks, months, perhaps even years. Gethsemane will be the climax of that wrestling, but but Jesus bore the weight of His coming death throughout His life. My soul is troubled. Oh, dear believer, have have you ever considered what a glory that is for you? To have a Savior who knows what it is to have a troubled soul? To have a Savior who understands that those turnings... As you face your troubled soul, as you face your struggles, to know that He's been there ahead of you, that that He understands. I mean, we just sang it. What a Savior! To willingly enter into our troubles so that as Hebrews 4 says, He can sympathize with our weaknesses and give grace to help in time of need. Dear one, in your need, run to Him. And so in agony of soul, Jesus prays. And as He prays, He's he's pouring out His heart to the Father in verse 27. Father, I'm in trouble. So, so, So what should I ask of You now, Lord, to rescue me from this and leave these in their sin? No. And you can hear the echo here of what He will eventually pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if You're willing, remove this cup of suffering from Me. And yet immediately He adds in that same verse, but nevertheless not My will, but Your will be done. If we are to be saved, He cannot be. And so here likewise, he, he turns immediately and says, No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is why I'm here. This is why you have sent me. 
And we see the, the, the resolution of the whole prayer just very quickly. It's short, but it's powerful. He then immediately turns and says, Father, mm, Father, glorify Your name. Not my will, Yours. Not my comfort, but Your glory. It's what I'm after. And we, we, we see Jesus resolving again and again to yield Himself in death for us and for the glory of the Father. Oh, imagine the battles Jesus must have fought on His way to the cross. And yet He yields. He yields again. Why? Chief among His thoughts, notice, for the Father's glory. Think about this as you think of His life and you think of your own life. For Jesus, the Father's glory matters more to Him than life itself. To see us come to adore Him is chief among His passions. One of my commentaries put it well. He said He literally loved God's glory more than His own soul. And thus He found strength to overcome the infinite suffering of the cross. And thus He prays, Father, glorify Your name. And as soon as those words come out of His lips, there's a thunderclap of sound as the Father booms from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. I mean, put yourself in that situation. Don't you imagine the people standing there jumped out of their skins when they heard that? Verse 29 says that's what they thought. Some said it's thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Job 40 verse 9 describes the voice of God like thunder. So does Psalm 29 verse 3. It says the God of glory thunders. Thunder is how the terrified people of Israel perceived the, the voice and the presence of God in Exodus at Sinai. You may remember, we're told in Exodus 19.16 that on the, the morning of the third day, there, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people in the camp trembled. Verse 19, And the sound of that trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And so this, this was no mild, distant rumbling. This, this was a thunderclap of God's sovereign majesty. I, I imagine people ducked when they heard it and cried out, Thunder! Another said, No, no, it's an angel of God speaking as He did at Sinai. And I take the confusion we see in the crowd here, uh, the shock of the whole thing to mean that for most of them, they did not understand the words. Uh, perhaps uh, the sound was too big and, and too immense to be taken in by human ears, but, but Jesus understands. But this is the Father's response to His prayer over His troubled soul. Father, glorify Your name. And the Father shouts from heaven, I have glorified it! Meaning, I am pleased with everything You've done, my Son. And I will glorify You and I will continue to get glory through You through everything that's about to come. And son, just, just keep walking. Stay the course and You will accomplish everything I've sent You to accomplish. We see just this, this intimacy of the Father and the Son in this sudden thundering. 
For, for indeed, everything is, is working out exactly as God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit have planned it. But that, that plan will involve the suffering and death of God's Son. And so Jesus here steals Himself for what is coming. And then He says something surprising, did you notice? I mean, clearly these words from heaven are meant to encourage Him. But they aren't meant for Him alone, are they? In fact, they're not even meant primarily for Him. Notice what He says to the crowd in verse 30. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus didn't need the Father to confirm who He is. Jesus knows who He is. But the crowd doesn't. And so this thunder was not just meteorology. It was God confirming to the crowd, This is my Son. And not for the first time, is it? Do you remember? God has spoken from heaven like this before in the life and ministry of Jesus. The first time was at the very beginning of His public ministry at His baptism. Matthew 3.17, as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Father booms from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. About halfway through His public ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration with some of the apostles, Matthew 17, 5, the Father booms, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And now here at the very end of His ministry, God once again proclaims His joy in His Son. Listen. Friend, if you will listen to the voice of God, He will always point you to Jesus. Every time God's Word is opened and you understand what God is saying there, this is the message, look and believe on my Son. You want to know God? You go to the Son. You want, to, you want, to be, you want God to be pleased with you? Go to the Son. Everything in the whole plan of God for all of history and all nations hinges on this that Jesus came to save sinners. That brings us then to verse 31 and 33, and that is to understand that this now is the turning point of all history. That the turning point of all history comes at the point of Christ's death. Listen to him, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Now, you can, you can easily see the turning point language here is simply unmistakable. Now, he says, and then again, now it all comes together. You know, it is no mistake that we divide history at this point. B.C. before Christ, Anno Domini, uh, after the coming of the Lord. Now, I know we've obscured it now, at least we've tried to, with, with B.C.E. before the common error and, and A.C.E. after the common error. That's just a smoke screen. We all know what we're talking about. Christ has split history down the middle. And here he tells us, first of all, that his death, the death of Jesus, is where the judgment of God begins to fall upon this world. Hear him again. Now is the judgment of this world. You see, we tend to think that God's judgment is something that is simply yet to come. And of course, in a sense, 
very real it is yet to come. Because it is something of, of, of eschatology. And by eschatology we mean those last days, those things that are yet to come. Uh, things that we often think of as, as simply being in the distant future. But what we, what we forget is that those end times have already begun. That they began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. This eschatological realm, this, this reality of end time, eternity, of heaven and hell, glory and judgment has already begun to break into this world with the coming of Jesus. And that includes the end time reality of judgment. It is not only yet to come, it has already come in Christ's death on the cross. Understand this, when Jesus died on the cross, that was indeed an act of God's final judgment. God was executing judgment for sin upon Christ. Now, for us who are in Christ by faith, this is incredibly good news. Because now, when we look at the cross, we can see there our final judgment has already fallen. That it, that it fell upon Jesus in our place. His death is the final judgment for us. Hell is drunk down to the dregs in Christ for us. And that's why for us, the Bible says, there is now no condemnation. Right? Don't you love that? Romans 8, 1... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for us in Christ, the verdict has fallen. The sentence that stood against us in our sin has been executed on Him as He has taken our place in judgment upon the cross. Somebody should say, Hallelujah! But for those outside of Christ, the cross also stands as a declaration of judgment. In this case, it is judgment to come. Now, there's a third element we could see in Romans that judgment is already falling upon this world in many ways. But here, we think of the final judgment that Christ drank down for His people, but which still stands against those who are not His people. When you, if you're outside of Christ, see the cross, what you're seeing there is a display of the living judgment of God that still stands against you and is coming for you and will soon be here. And that's what you should understand. Every time you look up and you see a cross, you should understand that this is a preview of what is coming. Here stands a demonstration in Christ's blood of the judgment my sins deserve. And that judgment is coming and, and you will bear it yourself for all eternity unless you flee to Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 is one of many places that, that encourages us. And we'll come back to it in a second. But J.C. Ryle makes this comment. He says, Terribly black must be that guilt for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could possibly satisfy. Heavy must be the weight of human sin by which Jesus groaned and sweat drops of blood in agony at Gethsemane and cried out at Golgotha, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is a sign written in blood declaring the fact that God's judgment has come upon this world. But second, notice also Jesus says further that the cross is where Satan's 
kingdom begins to fall. Again, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Cast out. It's it's the same word we see used elsewhere for the casting out of a demon. I'll often be reading Luke or Mark or Matthew and I'll, I'll hear this word and I'll imagine Jesus taking a demon by the scruff of the neck and the seat of his pants and just casting it out onto the street. But, but here, here it's not just some little demon critter. It is the prince of darkness himself. The ruler of this world, Satan, that Jesus is about to cast down from his lofty throne. Now, you may ask, why is Satan called the ruler of this world? And it's not only here that he's called that. But remember that when Adam sinned, In his sinning, he yielded place to Satan. By the way, just as you do whenever you sin. It was Adam who had been appointed as our representative before God to rule this world, to tend and care for this world on God's behalf. But when Adam yielded to Satan, he lost that authority. He he bowed the knee and fell under the devil's dominion. And ever since that time... Satan has been the de facto ruler of this world. Not by right, but by cunning and deception. This world was never meant for him. God did not create it to give to him. God did not appoint him its rightful ruler. But we made him so by our sinning. And by means of sin, through guile and deception and threat and fear, he has ruled in this world ever since. And the nations themselves were held in His deceptive hands with an iron grip of unbelief so that 1 John 5.19 can say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I mean, think about it. Before the coming of Christ, this world was held in a prison of unbelief. All but Israel, and, and half the time it looked like they were as well. And yet now comes from the lips of Jesus this trumpet blast and the walls of hell begin to tremble because the coming of Christ signals the downfall of Satan's kingdom. The Lord is coming for him. 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, do you see what a powerful statement that is? The coming of Christ is the crushing of Satan's kingdom. When when Jesus went to the cross, listen, Satan did not win there. He lost. He lost big, decisively, completely. That's where Colossians 2.15 comes in. I tried to get to it early. (laughs) He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Satan's power to deceive the nations and keep them bound in unbelief was broken when Jesus died and rose again. Hey, you want proof of that? You want proof? Look around this room. Look around this room. You know know what you see here in this room? We are the very nations that were held in that iron grip when Jesus spoke these words. 
My ancestors were running around Europe somewhere painting themselves blue and trying to bring down a mastodon or something. They, they had no idea of Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't care. Had missionaries come, they would have slaughtered their throats and eaten them for dinner. And then Jesus broke the back of Satan's hold and the gospel began to go out. And people began to come home. When when Christ broke the back of Satan's power, He liberated us and sent His apostles to bring us word of our redemption. And that continues now. Every time the gospel is preached, the sound that you hear is the rumbling fall of Satan's kingdom because we go out against a defeated enemy. Hell has had its D-Day. And so Satan continues to fight. He's still got fight in him, just as the German troops still had fight in them after D-Day, but they had already fallen. The writing was on the wall, and the writing is on Satan's wall. His power is done. And understand, dear church, this is why there is hope in the mission's mandate. It's why we can go out with confidence, whether across the street or around the world. Matthew 28, 18, what does Jesus say? All authority has been given to me. Not, I've got some authority, Satan's got some authority, we're duking it out. No, it's done. I've got the authority, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations. Go proclaim liberty to the captives. Knowing as you do that this gospel has power to save, and there's nothing Satan can do to stop that. We serve from victory. Christ sends us out to face a defeated enemy, which is why we must go, which is why we must give, which is why we must pray and support and preach, because the gates of hell cannot stand against the assault of Christ's Word and Kingdom. And oh, you've got to believe that. Because third, Jesus tells us here wonderfully, through His death... Jesus Himself is drawing all nations to Himself. Verse 32 is one of those verses you ought to get up and dance over. And I, Jesus says, look at the emphasis, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. That's the Gospel in one verse. Jesus says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, speaking of the cross... By what I do there, I will draw all nations to Myself. Remember remember how this section begins with these Greeks coming, looking for Jesus in verse 20. And I don't know if you noticed this last week, but it looked initially like Jesus ignored them. He doesn't respond to them at all. We never hear. Do they get to talk to Jesus? Do they not? Well, here is finally Jesus' answer concerning them. When I'm lifted up from all the earth, then I will draw all people, including these Greeks, to Myself. For Greeks, for Romans, for Asians and Africans and Europeans and whoever, for any of us to have access to God, Christ must die. This seed must be sown. I must be lifted up, he says. I must be lifted up. And that's the key that opens this door. And everyone there knew what he meant when he said lifted up. It was to be lifted up was slain for to be crucified. Hey, did you hear about Jonas? No, I haven't seen him. What happened to him? The Romans got him and they they lifted him up. Oh, his poor family. And then just in case we didn't clue into that, John breaks in himself in verse 33 as the narrator and says, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. By being lifted up 
In death, Jesus opened the door to draw all people to Himself. And by that He means all kinds of people. He doesn't mean each and every individual without exception. This is not universalism. He means all people without distinction. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so you want a a bottom line meaning of the death of Jesus and why it matters? Here it is. He dies for the glory of God. Remember, that's where we began. For the glory of God, Jesus yields Himself in death. He willingly embraces the pain and suffering of the cross in our place that we might escape the judgment. Right? He takes it on Himself. And be liberated from Satan's power so that we can be drawn to Him by faith to become beloved sons and daughters of the living God. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men perish eternally, He would send His Son to take our nature upon Himself and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows His love. That brings us then to this third thing, and really this is an invitation and a warning. As Jesus tells us, the time is short. The time is short and you must enter Christ's kingdom by faith while you still can. Verse 34. So the crowd answered him. I mean, talk about knuckleheadedness. The crowd answered him, Well, we've we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who, Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. See, the crowd doesn't understand. They rarely understand, do they? I mean, just this is free... If you're getting your view of truth and life and of what matters from the crowd out there, chances are that you understand nothing. It's the blind leading the blind. And they are blind here. Listen listen to them push back against Jesus based on what they think they know. Wait a minute, Jesus. What kind of son of man are you talking about? What do you mean die? I mean, we thought you were claiming to be the Christ or something, but Christs don't die. They, they live forever in triumph. We, we read that somewhere in the Bible. We know it. We've, we, we've heard that from the popular preachers. So how can you say the Son of Man is going to die? You see, it just didn't compute for them. It's not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. Their understanding of the law drawn from the popular preaching of the day, left no room for a dying Messiah. But you understand, of course, it was a selective reading of the Old Testament. You know how that works. You've done it yourself, probably. You pick the verses you like and ignore the rest, especially the hard ones. Well, they've picked all kinds of verses that they like. 
Psalm 89, 3 and 4, God has said, I I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Verse 36, speaking of Messiah, His offspring shall endure forever the throne as long as the sun before me. Isaiah 9 verse 7, which is part of our Christmas celebrations usually, says of the increase of His government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Or Ezekiel 37.25, They will dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. These are their favorite verses. They love these verses. They just ignore the others. Or the popular preaching of the day. Some of the books they were reading. Uh, Books like 1 Enoch which says, The Lord of the spirits will abide over them. They shall eat and rest and rise with the Son of Man who will reign forever and ever. Or the Sibylline Oracle, I'm sure you've got that on your nightstand somewhere, says, For a holy prince will come to gain sway over the scepters of the earth forever as time passes on. So based on this selective reading and these popular writings, they were looking for a war horse Messiah, a king seated on an earthly throne reigning over their enemies. And you know the really sad thing? They were almost right. Because Christ will reign one day over His enemies. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But before that day, there is this day. This hour of suffering and death as the Messiah lays down His life. You know, you could almost wish that they'd gone on in Isaiah to read the whole thing and to get to Isaiah 53 where he were told he will be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. Again, dear friend, it's not enough to to, to pick the parts of the Bible you like. You've got to take the whole thing, especially the hard parts. But Jesus, Jesus refuses to play whack-a-mole theology with them. He's not going to bother to swat down all their silly ideas. Instead, notice, because of the urgency out of a heart of love, He simply appeals to them. He, He pleads for their souls. Come before it's too late. He says, verse 35, The light is among you for just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The light, the light. What's the light He's talking about here? Of course, you you would know that already, right? It's it's Christ Himself. His presence. All the way back to John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's Jesus doing? He's telling them, forget this foolishness. Forget these speculations. Forget these things and look to Me. I'm only going to be here for a short time longer, a few days. Your chance to believe Me is now. Please don't squander it. Personally, I think that middle part of verse 35, if you understand what it's saying, is truly terrifying. Listen to it again. Jesus said to them, the light is among you just a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. What a picture. Do you see it? Can you see it in your mind's eye? Imagine that you're out trying to get home from a difficult hike over rough terrain. It's it's a dangerous place with with pitfalls and, and snakes and dangers hidden along the path, crags and sinkholes along a ridge, and very much like the world we're living in now, plenty of places to fall and die. And while the light is shining, well, you can sort of make your way, you can pick your way through, but 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 you begin to notice that the darkness is falling. And you hear a rumbling in the distance. The rumble of a thunder, a black storm is approaching. And to your horror, you begin to realize it's moving faster than you are. And that's the picture here. you got light for now. There's a chance of getting home. But that storm, the blackness is overtaking you. And when... It catches you and falls upon you. You will be doomed. But Christ is the light. He is the light that is present and available for them now. He's the light that is present and available for us now. But His warning is just for a limited time. For them, for them, that time is limited to Christ's time on earth. But soon He will be gone and their opportunity to see and hear and repent and believe will be gone with Him. For you... For you here this morning, it's, it's limited perhaps to your time here on earth, which, do I need to remind you, is probably much shorter than you realize. Soon you will be gone. Now, some of you may say, because I know who I'm talking to, well, you know, I'm still pretty young. There's plenty of time for me. There's no urgency. Dear one, let me say as gently as I can, you do not know your time. You don't know your time. None of us do. You may have very little left indeed. It could be hours, days. But even if it's decades still, your heart may grow hard. You keep putting Christ off and it will grow hard. The time to believe is now while He stands at the door. Because He may never stand like this again. How how many young people do you know or people in your particular situation who once thought there was plenty of time, I I can come to Christ whenever I wish, but since that time, pride and trials and troubles have driven a wedge between them and the Gospel they were hearing. It's driven them far from the preaching of Christ. They can no longer hear Him calling through the Gospel as they once did. And as that voice grows fainter and fainter, their concern grows less and less. Can they be saved? Well, yes, surely. Will they be saved? Who knows? But not without the gospel that they're step by step cutting themselves off from. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 warns, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 4 7 says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. That's the kind of warning Jesus is giving here in verse 35. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you, because the one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. The lights go out and he can't see. The further you stray from Christ, the longer you delay, the less chance 
you have of finding your way back home. That's why He's urging as He does. It's why He finishes as He does in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And then notice what He does next. I almost missed this. I don't want you to miss it. Notice what He does next. Jesus says that. He delivers that warning. And then the second half of that verse, maybe it's cut off on your Bible to another page or by heading, but it's still the same verse. It says, When Jesus had said these things, He then departed and hid Himself from them. Now why did He do that? What's He doing here? Do you see that He's giving them a living taste of what's about to happen? The very thing He's warned about? That soon He'll be gone and with Him the light. And when that happens, ultimately they'll be without hope. The day of His presence and the offer of His salvation is here now, but it will be soon be taken from them. And dear one, I would just ask in, in, in the recess of your own heart, can you see that this is a word spoken to you? I mean, if you've ever wished God would speak to you in His Word, here He does. While you have the light... Believe in the light that you may become sons, daughters of the light. Friend, this is His call to you. By faith come to Christ. Turn from all else and trust in Him alone. Friend, the good news of the Gospel for all who believe is you don't have to fall under judgment. You you can be liberated from the hold Satan has on you. This is why Christ came. He came to defeat the devil. He came to give light and life to those who turn to Him and believe. John 1.12 To all who received Him, those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. You can know that you're a child of God. You can know that your sins are forgiven and your future eternally secure. But it comes by turning from your sin and embracing Christ by faith for all that He's come to do. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Let's pray, Father. I'm praying for every soul, the sound of my voice. I'm praying for those who do know Christ by faith that they would be drawn even deeper to trust Him, to walk with Him, to indeed to walk and keep walking in this light that is joy and security and peace and eternity. But even more, I'm praying for those, Lord, who stand outside and like this crowd aren't understanding and are growing harder that You would, by Your grace, break that hard shell, open the heart fully, And let Christ be seen for who He is, God's Son, dead, buried, raised again for life. The one who ends Satan's reign and ends judgment by taking it upon Himself. Grant grace, grant faith, and draw to Yourself for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand.